afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 16th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and I'm serving as the host for these discussions. We are streaming on YouTube Live. The link to this discussion can be found at the Scott Knowles YouTube channel. If you just look for Scott Knowles and COVID calls, you'll find me there. Or you can email me at sgk23 at drexel.edu, or you can find me on Twitter at US of Disaster. Please do help spread the word about these discussions and send suggestions for guests and for future topics. Also, please feel free to suggest yourself to appear on a future COVID calls. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the Slow Disaster Podcast. On Tuesday, we have a discussion of disaster resilience and data with Daniel Aldrich, the director of the Security and Resilience Studies Program at Northeastern University in Boston. You know him from his many books, including most recently his Fukushima book, Black Wave, and Robert Soden, postdoctoral research scientist at Columbia University. Robert works in the area of crisis informatics, human-computer interaction, and science and technology studies. As of today, there are globally 1,324,907 confirmed cases of COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. This is up from 1,076,017 cases on Friday. 352,546 of those are in the United States, up from 261,438 on Friday. There are now a total of 10,389 deaths reported in the United States, up from 6,699 on Friday. And people I talk to in public health tell me that the number is low. A new number, which I've started also reporting, um, there are now 18,999 reported survivors of COVID-19 in the United States. Every rising generation of disaster researchers has a defining disaster, sometimes more than one. A disaster that's moving either fast or slow that barges onto the research agenda, forcing new questions and dilemmas into our work. I guess I can say I'm of the September 11 generation of researchers. I was in graduate school still when September 11 happened. In fact, I was on a plane on the way to Chicago to do research on the Iroquois theater fire. And by the time I landed in Chicago that day, the Twin Towers had been attacked. All of a sudden, the material that I was considering about the 19th century took on a very new cast. And for the first time, I was also asked uh, and had some trouble answering uh, for a while. What do your historical studies tell us about how we might cope with the world that was remade by September 11? People were searching for historical analogies. In many ways, I suppose I'm still trying to answer that question now. And with this in mind, I was eager to start a series of conversations, and this will be a regular feature on COVID calls, today being the first with rising disaster researchers, experts from different fields who are still in earlier stages of their careers. In other words, let's talk to the future of the field. So let me introduce briefly my guests for today. Nania Campbell is a research associate 
at the Natural Hazards Center and co-founder of the Collaborative for the Social Dimensions of Disasters. She is a sociologist whose research interests center on the intersections between vulnerability and resilience, particularly among older adults and the organizations that serve them. Hi, Nania. Hi, Scott. Ryan Hagen is a doctoral scholar in the Department of Sociology at Columbia University. His research is at the intersection of organizational sociology, sociology of culture, and the sociology of science, knowledge, and technology. He's writing a book based on his dissertation research, an ethnographic study of emergency managers and continuity planners in New York City. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yansil Kang is a visiting assistant professor at the Department of History, Drexel University. She received her PhD from the Graduate School of Science, Technology, and Policy at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology in 2017. She is currently working on the history of asbestos and its disastrous consequences in South Korea. Yansil, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Zachary Loeb is a PhD candidate in the History and Sociology of Science Department at the University of Pennsylvania. He works in the intersection of history and technology and disaster studies, with a particular interest in unheeded warnings and doomsaying. He's currently writing a dissertation on Y2K. Hi, Zach, how are you? Thanks for having me. And last but not least, Valerie Marlowe is the Assistant Director for Archives and Collections at the Disaster Research Center, the DRC, at the University of Delaware. Valerie is responsible for strategic oversight of DRC collections and archival holdings, including the E.L. Corintelli Resource Collection. Valerie's research and practical work primarily focuses on issues related to how disaster-related archives, collections, and other forms of cultural heritage are created and maintained. So it's wonderful to have uh, such a, a really stunning collection of researchers with us today. We have a packed agenda full of questions and I wanna encourage everyone to put your questions in the YouTube live chat or you can tweet them. And if you do that, just tag at US of Disaster so that I can find them. So I'd like to actually start if I could with a lightning round where we would just go around and maybe each of the guests, because I gave very short um, introductions there, each of the guests can say a little more about their own research background. And also, if you would, just briefly tell us how COVID-19 is altering your traje trajectory. What new questions are you, are you asking? It's probably too soon to say anything definitive, certainly it is, but maybe you can go ahead and share with us a little bit about um, what this moment, what this disaster means to you in your research. So with that, um, let me start with Nania. Sure, thanks. Um, my background, of course, is in sociology. Um, and so my, my work largely deals with the impacts of disasters on older adults. And so right now, of course, with the COVID-19 crisis continuing to unfold, um, I'm very concerned about that population. It's something that I've thought about a lot that they're often discussed and I see it being reproduced right now discussed as a vulnerable group, discussed in ways that are often kind of paternalistic, but then ignored in the, in the same breath. Um, so I continue to see that unfolding with a lot of discourse that speaks about elders as a vulnerable group, but this does not directly speak to them or the organizations that serve them. So I'm trying to grapple with that right now in terms of how I can orient my research toward addressing some of that, applying the lessons I've learned from my prior research and prior studies 
um, and figuring out the long-term trajectory for this population um, and uh, what else we can do as researchers to develop new insights um, and help provide resources to those uh, service providers that serve those groups. All right, Nania, thank you for that introduction. Ryan, let me come to you, same question. Sure, so I study anticipation, uh, which is to say how the present is shaped by our actions to avoid or to achieve the futures that we envision. Um, and so usually in sociology, we study disasters that have happened in the past. We use them as case studies to give retrospective accounts of what went wrong or how inequality shaped the distribution of harm or how people experience these traumatic events. And we use these case studies to see society, as Lee Clark says, as it mends itself back together. But uh, something we know less about in sociology is the work of anticipating future disasters before they happen. And so my dissertation work and all of the work that I've done up until now has been about um, studying, trying to better understand the disasters that do happen by trying to see the disasters that don't because they that don't happen because they've been mitigated or they've been uh, dealt with before they've become major problems. Um, and so uh, that's the reason I was doing research with emergency managers. Um, one way that the COVID pandemic has changed my trajectory is that I've been thinking a lot more about time and the way that disasters unfold slowly. Um, this disaster is totally unlike in a lot of ways, 9-11 or um, Hurricane Katrina or Sandy or any of these events that are, that are concentrated punctuations uh, and then there's a long recovery. And yet with this, uh, we're still, we've been, I've been staying at home for about a month now and this disaster seems to have only just begun. And so the idea that uh, we're gonna deal with this mm. stress for a very long time has changed a lot of the ways that I've been thinking about my research and the way that we think about the temporality of disaster. Mm. Thank you. That has definitely been on my mind too. I don't think we have good language to even talk. I talk about slow disaster a lot, but this is somehow medium slow. I don't even know how to capture it yet. Um, thanks, Ryan. Yonsa, let me come to you. Same question. Um, thank you. So speaking of temporality, my uh, work is actually focused largely on the temporality. Uh, I am work currently working on the manuscript titled as uh, Mineral Times and Bodily Times, which is sort of contrasting different time scales of asbestos fiber, which is not destructible and uh, diseasing bodies. So um, my, as kind of opposed to Ryan, I am looking at this long tales of seemingly explosive disasters. So I am looking at uh, politics related to compensation and how this um, seemingly manageable risk constantly causes the scientific debate about how to manage this risk uh, with the case of asbestos in South Korea. Um, so my question uh, in light of this COVID-19 also has to do with this long tales of this disaster. So how this is going to be end? How does the post-pandemic will uh how will this post pandemic look like mm -hmm. um and also i am currently at a very unique position to observe both united states and korea which has been talked a lot and i'm i see a lot of interesting um translations of different uh, approaches to manage this epidemic so pro uh, probably i am uh, one take i am getting is this comparative uh perspective oh, I'm 
I really want to come back to that for sure. And our Friday, we had Song Sik Hwang and Cheong Jung uh, from South Korea actually talking about that. They really dove into the South Korean case and, and sort of drawing that out as a comparative is, is not easy at all. Um, so thank you, Yonsa. Let's um, turn to uh, Zach. Would you mind uh, taking on the same question? Take us inside uh, your research and how it may be changing right now. I'm currently in the midst of a dissertation project on the year 2000 software crisis, better known as Y2K. And as all of this was kind of kicking off, I was in the midst of going through a part of my research where I've just been reading a lot of preparation manuals for Doomsday, um, which has been kind of an odd thing to be sorting through at the same time that like, suddenly I'm not just reading these kind of fringe figures being like, hey, stock up on toilet paper suddenly it's also the CDC saying some of the same things. In terms of my research, I'm really interested in warnings, unheeded warnings, especially the way that warnings kind of get blown out of proportion at times and the response to them. And one of the things that I've been finding very interesting throughout the COVID-19 crisis is all of the reactions about how nobody could have seen this coming, what could have been done in advance, the questions of expertise, and it's been interesting working through this in terms of my own research, because Y2K for me is really one of these instances where the experts were listened to, and they did such a good job of addressing and preparing for the problem mm -hmm. that now we look back at Y2K as being this joke. And the reason that we can look back at it and laugh is because the disaster was prevented. So I've been really focused on those aspects. I also have a background working in libraries. So one of the other things that I've been really interested in, in terms of this, and also in terms of this question for scholarship more broadly, is what it means for people to be doing research in this, this time, academics, graduate students, undergrads, when so many of the places that we rely on to do our research are not available to us. Thank you, Zach. And that's just an ideal segue to our fifth guest, Valerie Marlowe. So Valerie, please tell us a little bit about your own work and what's happening for you around COVID-19. Yeah, I actually um, uh, paid Zach to, to lead me off that way earlier. Yeah. So thanks for, thanks. Zach. Um, so my work fo focuses on um, post-disaster cultural heritage, which uh, in, in sort of the organizational senses, archives, libraries, um, other kinds of museum collections, things like that and um, centers around questions of what do we remember about disasters, whose stories get told, um, things like that. I think um, in particular, my dissertation research was about an organization called the World Trade Center Documentation Task Force, which is a group of archivists and museum professionals who came together after 9-11 to document the disaster. And that was really one of the earlier instances of what now is referred to in the field as quick response collecting. So um, we're starting to see some quick response collecting around COVID-19 and I'm really interested to see kind of what those efforts are, how they, how they shape up. Um, and then the other thing is, is um, questions around digital collecting and digital preservation with everybody at home that changes the way that these organizations can collect material. And so how will that then, sort of uh, the, the other side of Zach's question, how will that then change the way that we make research materials available preserve them, things like that. All right, thank you, Valerie. So just a reminder to everyone, this is a round table, researchers round table today, and please do get your questions in. You can send them by YouTube live. That's probably the best way. You can also uh, tweet them 
and just tag at US of Disaster to follow up with any of our researchers today. Um, I'm gonna come, um, Nanny, I'm gonna come back to you, uh, for you first and then for everyone. You know, we worry a lot in the disaster research world. And when we talk about disaster research today, I mean, this is a really broad area. I mean, I think, uh, and we'll talk later about the pros and cons of it being so broad. But I mean, it's everything from humanities and social sciences to economics, to uh, data, information sciences, public health. I think there are many people who sort of fit under the tent. But Nenia, you know, we, we do worry a lot, I worry a lot, and there's a whole subfield about translating research findings into use, you know, actually showing measures. And many of us are at pains to show those measures in sometimes quantitative ways. You know, what's the, what's the dollar value, you know, the dollars spent on supporting the kind of research we do, what's the payoff on the other side in the public sector, in better governance, in better disaster response, or in the private sector in dollars saved. Um, and so I wanna bring that to you first, because I know you think about this. How can we show the value in this moment and I guess connected with that is this question of how can academics sort of move beyond their realm of the classroom and the archive and the lab and make their knowledge more relevant in this current moment? Um, well, this is something I've thought about a lot, particularly as somebody who did choose to, choose to go down a different path than the traditional tenure track path in academia. Um, in favor of the flexibility to do research full-time and to focus more on applied topics. Um, so I think that uh, it's in general a challenging issue, as you noted, because um, you know, this isn't something that's in our wheelhouse that we're trained to do, um, particularly as academics who go through graduate school that doesn't train us on how to translate our knowledge and skills um, as researchers into products and even conversations that are readily, readily um, useful to inform on the ground operations. Um, but particularly in one of the, that was one of the things that I was interested in, in getting into the disaster research field in the first place. And so, you know, making this difference on the ground. And so um, for me, I addressed that through choosing to also pursue, pursue training and program evaluation and to work with people who were supposed to be implementing our lessons learned right in the field. And so um, the kind of products then through that that I've been trained to think about and through my experiences um, to, to, to start thinking about um, are different than what you would necessarily pursue as uh, traditional academics. So thinking about how journal articles are often behind a paywall and practitioners can't necessarily access those either um, from a resources perspective and being able to pay for those subscriptions or from the time perspective, but what it takes to read a 20, 30 page article and, and take those nuggets of um, applicable knowledge out of them. Um, and so I think we need to be paying more attention to those kinds of issues um, and what barriers people face day to day in the field. Um, you know, even as somebody who has a bit of experience in this, I'm constantly being reminded of by partners um, that, you know, a 20, page, a 20 page report that I produce is not gonna be as valuable or useful to them. Um, so I'm always working to learn how to create shorter, more visually compelling products to um, kind of communicate the essential details in different ways than we often do. Um, and to talk about, to think about what about my insights that I'm finding are actually useful on the ground, how to use a language and work with my research participants as kind of partners in learning, um, not just viewing research as a process of extraction, which I think we often do and is one of our flaws, um, as a field, uh, we talk to a lot of other researchers, but we kind of 
parade into communities sometimes or into mm. organizations with this perspective that um, they're giving us something. And I think that we do need to be paying more attention to reciprocity in the research process. Um, and so uh, then translating that, you know, thinking about that in the context of COVID-19, um, I'm grappling even more with those issues and with the time pressure that folks are, are facing and the barriers that stakeholders have. Um, and so, uh, for example, one of the projects I have right now is, uh, is focused on food banks in the United States and how uh, to look at its an evaluation of their preparedness and uh, research on their response capacity. And because of the situation right now, though that project is essentially paused, um, it would be a fantastic time to be collecting data um, and to be doing a kind of quick response research that we're, we're so familiar with as disaster researchers. But at the same time, it would be, you know, recognizing that food banks throughout the country are in an all hands on deck situation. It would be inappropriate for me to take away from any of the bandwidth there. And so one of the things that I'm doing is trying to collect indirect data sources and following the issues that food banks are facing. Um, so that I can be prepared once things have calmed down to hit the ground running and to, to capture that data that I still can that's perishable, to be able to look through um, the data that I have access to through those organizations to um, be able to start drawing those key insights. Um, but I think that it's about sensitivity as researchers and about thinking of those kinds of things ahead of time. Um, and another thing that um, I'm working on in terms of setting up projects and, and being intentional about this kind of perspective of bringing that value proposition to work um, is the Natural Hazard Center currently has a call out for Converge Public Health and Social Science Initiative that's focused on um, you know, bringing groups of working groups of researchers together to work around the same the same topic and to coordinate and produce deliverables associated with that. Um, so the, the group that I'm proposing is focused on social safety net organizations and looking at some of the commonalities around them, how they're responding to COVID-19. Um, a lot of them have a lot of similar characteristics in terms of the populations that they serve, the kinds of volunteer bases that they have. And so um, my working group, the discussions we're having right now um, is thinking about as we're forming, how are we going to communicate our findings and observations in ways that can help to inform practice? So not just sharing in a research format, um, a research brief, you know, our lessons learned, but also thinking about how do we produce templates and checklists, infographics, and those kinds of visual tools that can be easily accessed by, accessed by organizations and the, the personnel within them, um, and that can be used by them to help inform their practice as they continue to respond and um, you know take models from those from those observations we've made that have been successful so um, I'll stop there but generally no, that's, that's how wonderful I'm there's so much in what you're saying I mean part of it is about thinking about even the sort of deliverables that may have a really deep research base but it might be delivered in ways that are unconventional of course that raises all kinds of challenges for academics if, particularly if they're in conservative fields that only value one kind of output <clears throat> historical profession um, but also you know I really appreciate your discussion on not just what we should do but how we have to be cognizant of what not to do in these kind of moments and there may be this urgency to converge you know I mean the literature tells us going way back there's this desire to help um, but that shouldn't mean that we jump into a space where we're taking away time for other kind of responders. In other words, you talked about data extraction and to avoid that in this, in this particular moment. It sometimes requires some patience and some waiting, which doesn't seem to me like a luxury that 
I have right now. I wonder if anybody else wanted to pick up on any of the themes that, that came out, what Nania said, or, or if you face this in your own work and you know, thinking about how to make your work intelligible for non-academics. Well, I'd like to jump in just briefly. Sure, um, I think so. So Scott mentioned in my introduction, the EL Corn Tele Resource Collection. And so that's a, a disaster library. And um, so we have been thinking a lot about um, risk communication, crisis communication usually is targeted towards populations, right? You're trying to warn a hurricane vulnerable population about a need to evacuate. You're trying to do something specific. Um, this is an, a disaster that kind of we're all experiencing together in real time across the world, which is really unprecedented. I mean, certainly it's not the great equalizer that people keep talking about, but it is definitely something that everyone is, is um, experiencing. So um, we uh, have put together um, on our, our EL Quarantelli Resource Collection Twitter account, um, we're calling it hashtag COVID context. And every day we tweet a little explainer thread about some subfield that's involved here, mm -hmm. because I really think it's important. We're not all starting from the same knowledge base. And I think it's important that there's some kind of sense that we're all working from the same set of facts. And so we wanted to try and provide that in our own little corner. And we've been doing that a little bit. That's great. So that's the, that's, and what is just give the, let's get this out there. The, the hashtag again. Yeah. Yeah. It's hashtag COVID context. Okay. COVID context. And um, we tweet from our EL Quarantelli resource collection account, which is at ELQ underscore resource. Okay. So um, you, can, you can find those there. I'll put that in the description uh, of the podcast for this as well so that we can get that out there. It's yeah. tremendous, yeah. tremendous collection. Zach, let me come to you. Um, I know you think a lot about uh, warnings and doomsday. Uh, and I wonder how you think about this particular moment, you know, in that sense, we've heard a lot from disaster studies community that, you know, the sense we tried to warn you, like we have historical data to show you the kinds of things that can happen. And yet in this particular moment, it seems once again, um, we went unheard. And I don't know, I mean, how do you see this? You know, how do we make our warnings more effective? And, you know, warning in one sense is like how emergency managers or public health officials try to, um, you know, get, pressing time sensitive information to people, but there's a broader sense of warning that I think you're interested in, um, which cuts across different sectors of society. Somehow we missed it here. I think that all of us probably wish that we knew the answer to this question um, and not just, you know, the six of us on this call. I think that this is one of the questions for people in lots of fields right now. Why wasn't the warning heard. Um, whether you study natural hazards or technological hazards or diseases, there have been lots of warnings. There has been lots of, you know, awareness that something like this could happen, that a threat like this was out there. Um, you know, we can look back on just the last few decades and there have been a number of viruses and diseases that have sparked some public awareness and heightened fear of something like this happening. And yet that did not translate into being prepared for it. And I think that then one of the other sensations on the flip side of it is that when you try and warn 
about things in advance, you get dismissed as a prophet of doom or a technophobe or an alarmist. And then when the crisis hits, suddenly nobody could have seen this coming. Suddenly all of those voices who were originally dismissed of get pushed into the background because if we acknowledge that those warnings had been made, then it raises the question of why weren't they listened to? Preparation is one of those things where it's expensive and the payoff isn't immediately clear. If the money had been invested to stockpile ventilators, to stockpile masks, the cost of that at the outset would have been something that people, that some people at least would have pushed back on. They would have said, this isn't necessary. This is a waste of money. We have more immediate concerns. And then if a crisis had emerged and there had been that stuff, there probably would have been a lack of recognition of the work that had been needed ahead of time to make sure that we were ready when the situation hit. So, I mean, not to link everything back to Y2K, but it's the thing that I think about all the time now. You know, so much work went into preparing. That work took place over a decade. Hundreds of billions of dollars were invested in fixing things. And then the crisis was averted. So we look back at the people who had sounded the alarm at it as kind of these ridiculous figures. But I think that the dream of every alarmist is to go down in history as a ridiculous figure, because then it means that they listened to you. And, you know, there definitely are some prophets of doom out there who really seem to want to be that last person standing on the hillside, clad in sackcloth, laughing about how you all should have listened to me as everything burns down. But I think that people who, most people who try and sound the alarm, most people who try and put these warnings out, it's out of a real desire to prevent these things from happening. It comes from a recognition that these risks are real, these hazards are real. We don't know when exactly they are going to strike or exactly what it is going to look like, but we're aware that this possibility is real. Exactly. So, Let me stay with you for a second because your description of the the seer in the sackcloth. I, I once actually heard Mike Davis, uh, the author of City of Quartz, some of you are familiar with Mike Davis, described that way that he would sort of be up on the hillside while LA was burning and he would be scratching down notes for his next for his next book. But I think that that comment was was relevant in the sense, connecting back to what you said, is that, you know, Mike Davis is one of the people who's helped us see the structural underpinnings of inability to heed warning, that it's, and there's a sort of so, social psychological way we can approach this is to say, well, maybe there's just something about human society or human brains um, that puts certain, certain limits, um, you know, on what we can see, what we can imagine, how much fear we're willing to take in ahead of an event. I'm, I'm slightly uncomfortable with that as a historian because I'm always sort of looking for context, but. Um, at the same time, you know, Davis really says, no, there's structural conditions here that actually make it impossible to see some things ahead of time because they get in the way of profit. Somehow Y2K didn't fit that bill, but this did. Well, first off, when it comes to Mike Davis, I think that he's a wonderful think thinker to bring up in this context because we think of Mike Davis's books like Planet of Slums, Recology of Fear, 
But Mike Davis wrote a book about avian flu, which was all about warning about future pandemics. And that is not one of his books that he is particularly well remembered for. Um, I, I imagine that that is a book that many people are going to be revisiting in the time ahead and seeing, you know, what was said there that was missed. In terms of that comparison, uh, one of the things about Y2K is that it was in nobody's best interest to let Y2K happen. The banks, the insurance companies, they knew it was a real problem and they knew that they needed to fix it. Insurance companies, banks, um, the military, all of them were experiencing Y2K related problems years before that fateful deadline actually hit. And they knew that they needed to fix it because not just to keep their systems working, but also to protect themselves against liability. Nobody really had a vested interest in waiting to see what was going to happen. I think that with some other situations, this current one being one of those cases, the responsibility for preparation seemed so dispersed and the responsibility therefore for paying for that preparation seemed so dispersed that nobody wanted to be the group that was going to buy all of the ventilators because it seems like so many people in this situation felt that that was somebody else's responsibility. Somebody else needs to get the ventilators built. Somebody else needs to make sure that we're stockpiling masks. Somebody else needs to do all of those things. While in the case of Y2K, many of these companies realized if they didn't fix their problem, they were the managers who were going to get sued. Thank you for that. Ryan, I want to come to you. Um, I know one of the things that it seems like we've made some, had made some progress with was actually um, getting people concerned about climate change, particularly to begin, we may have noticed in the last round of hurricanes that the media stopped saying, is it possible that this hurricane is connected to climate change? But they were just reporting it as connected. And I thought, I saw that as a huge sort of step forward in the way we can conceptualize the relationship between disaster events and slow disasters. And, and you know, at the same time, so we've been making progress on that front, front and now, we have what you call a sort of a hazards whiplash that snaps us back into event mode. Um, I wonder, you know, what do you make of this? Is it now going to be impossible to do climate change research? Is COVID going to now sort of swamp our research field and climate change research is going to have to, in social sciences, it's just going to have to go back to the back burner again? Well, I think actually this is, question is really related to the last question about warning. Uh, in this, in a kind of a strange way, which is that um, the things that are most important are not necessarily uh, individual risk perception or whether or not people are individually prepared for specific hazards. Oftentimes, the way that people get through events like this is through really boring infrastructural changes, uh, whether they're material or social. So if we think about uh, urban fire, for example, uh, you know, urban fire deaths have fallen not because everyone has gotten really excited about fire safety and fire preparedness on an individual level, uh, but because we have, you know, over um, overhauled building codes and, um, and all of these things that people don't actually have to think about every day. And it's also true in the disaster space. And, and I'm glad that you have uh, Daniel Aldrich on this uh, program later in the week. But 
you know, he points out, and also Eric Klinenberg has touched on this, that social infrastructure in communities makes them more resilient no matter what the hazard is. Uh, and so there is this sort of uh, whiplash between different kinds of hazards that we face. And suddenly everyone today is thinking about uh, COVID-19 and pandemic preparedness. Um, and, you know, eventually this will fade from the research agenda and we'll be back to climate change or maybe there will be some other intervening event. Um, people are, are concerned about all kinds of different hazards. And so um, it's, it's important, I think, not to get caught up in, um, in going from crisis to crisis and thinking more fundamentally about the, the, the underlying problem, which is the disruption in people's ability to carry out the critical functions that they need to live their lives, to carry out society, and to, um, and to survive, right? And so those are the things that happen no matter what emergency we're facing. And that's one of the things that I took away from my conversations with emergency managers, which is you can't be prepared for everything. There will always be some unanticipated hazard or a hazard that you have anticipated will unfold in an unusual or unexpected time, place, or manner with unpredictable cascading consequences. And so the way to actually be resilient is to think less about triggers of disasters than the kinds of things that you, the kinds of routines and resources and relationships that you need to protect in order to be resilient. Um, and so when we think about warnings being, being um, overlooked or not heeded, uh, there are certainly, you know, within institutions in particular, it's important to think about why certain institutions don't pay attention to warnings of impending disasters that they are the expert in anticipating. Um, but it's also important to think about how we can focus on in our daily lives, building resilience and building healthy communities so that no matter what the event is, we're able to, to deal with it um, in a way that, or to improvise our way out of it in a way that everyone comes away stronger or, or at least survives it. Does that run counter somehow, though, Ryan, to funding regimes that still want to focus on particular categories of disaster? Because, I, I mean, this idea of building social capital and the research that's focused on, which I think unites all of you in one way or another, um, I think any of us who studies this knows that disasters punch down if we focus on the ways that communities, wherever they start from, can make themselves more resilient, even incrementally. There's plenty of evidence to show that that reduces misery before, during, and after disaster. But if you try to take a proposal like that, and I've been told this, they're like, well, that's poverty research. We don't do poverty research. We do tornado research, or we do pandemic research. It, can we get out of that box? Maybe this disaster is one that, that does show that really, because it's so global, and I want to come to Janssel next on this, around the sort of global comparative, that maybe that, that what's really called for here is really um, an all hazards global type of research that takes social units as the fundamental place to start. I think absolutely. And this is again something that I took away from my conversations with emergency managers and continuity planners is the importance of all hazards planning um, and the importance of all hazards research by implication. And it's beyond my expertise to say how we can get beyond these funding regimes that are focused on specific disasters. Uh, but it's certainly the case that if suddenly we've reoriented our, dis you know, the discipline of sociology, for example, around pandemic preparedness, um, and then 
next week there's a there's a Cascadia earthquake or an event of nuclear terrorism, suddenly we'll have been completely unprepared to think about that. We'll be in the same cosmology episode of trying to think through why warnings weren't heated and why we were not researching this very fundamental processes of resilience that are that will be necessary no matter what the hazard is. Remind me of Kim Fortune. You, you've got the Cascadia. Thank you. I had forgotten the Cascadia earthquake. I appreciate you for bringing that uh, back into my mind. When I had her on COVID calls in the first week, I asked her what she was thinking about. She said, I'm worried about a, a nuclear disaster in South Texas. I thought, no. But this is the kind of thing we have to be thinking about, is these connected and compound disasters. Yonsa, let me come to you, if you would, because you, you did say in your introduction that you had this quite unique vantage point both as a scholar, but also as a human being um, on this disaster. I wonder if you could take us a little bit inside your thinking um, about how we can do international comparative research at this time. And even you've pointed out there's a sort of Korean model of, of ontology for the disaster and response. There's a Chinese model. There's a German model, as we heard from Daniel Lawrence two weeks ago. Um, how do we... I mean, that seems like an impossibly difficult research project. So please tell us how to do it. Okay, so that's, as you mentioned, this is an impossible uh, question to, for me to answer. But one take, one observation I am constantly getting is that this, these so-called models, especially the Korean models, which is considered as the most, one of the successful cases, uh, is abstracting largely the infrastructure issues. So uh, Korean model is largely characterized as a, a intensive testing, but on the background, uh, there was, the, 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 it requires a, a network of public health institutes, but then it wasn't rarely talked about, especially in the United States. Um, so if I just revisit what I, uh, what I mean by this public health uh, infrastructure, uh, there are two types of hospitals. One is publicly owned, it's operated by the local authorities, local governments, and the other is privately owned ones. So in this case, in particular, um, the hospitals that play the significant roles were the ones publicly owned, operated by the cities, um, uh, prince, uh, provinces, those are the ones who, uh, who are on the front lines. Uh, but then I would like to say also that Korea got very lucky uh, in a sense that there has been a constant push uh, to you know, uh, weaken this public health infrastructure and move the entire health uh, infrastructure towards the private and more profit-oriented health, health infrastructure. So I just want to, um, I just see constantly how this uh, um, abstraction of infrastructural aspect, but then uh, pointing out this testing only um, as something to be learned uh, by the other countries, it might 
significantly um, lead to the significant misunderstanding of how uh, Korea dealt with this case. So here I'm not really saying that Korea did all uh, all the good things. I'm just saying that we are very, uh, Korea got very lucky in a sense that we experienced this MERS art outbreak, which really uh, gave an opportunity to uh, restructure the entire preparedness against the epidemic. Um, and we had luckily a uh, public health infrastructure uh, there. So um, I'm seeing this um, different countries, how, how different countries reacting, how one country's uh, experience got translated, especially the Korean ones to the United States. Um, I understand this is an emergency situation, so we need quick take-ons, uh, something that can, be, that can be implemented. But I would say um, we, as an academia and as a uh, practitioners, um, we all need to get back to this infrastructure issues as we are uh, kind of managing these emergencies. I wonder, I'm, I'm always concerned. I mean, on the one hand, we need internationalization of our methodology. Mm. But on the other hand, I'm also concerned about sort of reifying um, and underlying the fact that we can do disaster research as a set of national case studies. And I think your insight there about infrastructure is really crucial. Can you, can you add anything to that? Like, I mean, how we should you be even thinking about, how would you do research on this from an infrastructure perspective? So um, let me get back to our previous discussion about this whole pre preparedness mm -hmm. and uh, uh, physical infrastructure and uh, so social capital uh, that kind of creates the buffer um, uh, when the when the disaster happens, mm -hmm. so um, I don't know. <laughs> to be honest, I it, I think it's a quite daunting job to do for a single researcher uh, to understand this entire entire way of organize uh, entire way that society is organized and the way that uh, the societies are responding to specific uh, specific uh, disaster, but. Um, I don't know. I think we need some time to process all these things uh, after a while, after we uh, kind of manage these emergencies and go really back to what kind of uh, responses were possible based on what kind of infrastructure, mm -hmm. uh, infrastructures. So I think that uh, learning about that connections will really uh, make us to better understand different responses towards uh, disasters and successes and failures of the responding to disasters. To me, that's really crucial and it ties back to many things that have already been said by many of you, and particularly to Zach's point, you know, that, that, that oftentimes the people who were prepared that made the disaster less impactful, um, it does, that's not a great story somehow. It, it lacks narrative punch somehow. We have to be aware that these disasters are, are things, but they're also stories. And so your idea that you would go back and actually consider where were different countries in terms of their infrastructure preparedness, and then what was the actual impact of that? We like to think that those studies are done, but oftentimes they're, they're rushed, they're, and then people lose interest, and then they get put on a shelf. Valerie, I want to come to you, um, and thank you for your patience, and I want to um, 
sort of um, ask you kind of the meta question here about research. And I think it ties into everyone here. I mean, you're, you're working in a library, you're working in one of the most important libraries of disaster research cases and field cases, field notes that, that we have. How, is, how are you thinking about the ways that COVID-19 is gonna change what we collect, how we get access to data, and also, if you're willing to speak to it, how disaster research itself is done, somehow remotely? How are we going to create IRBs in this moment? What's on your mind as you think about how disaster research and disaster documentation is changing right now? Yeah, so, I mean, I think in um, a lot of ways, we're, we're sort of in a, a little bit of a moment of um, the old paradigm is dead, long live the old paradigm. I think, um, you know, we are now, none of us will be able to submit a publication anywhere without putting our findings in the context of what happened with COVID-19, I think, in, in a lot of ways, just because it, it's so affected so many people and it is so changing the way that we as society think about things. Um, but at the same time, you know, we're seeing a lot of the same things that we always have, the pro-social behavior, healthcare workers coming out of retirement in droves, right? Um, and uh, also the same inequalities perpetuated that you see in other or smaller scale events. So I think um, on the one hand, some things will change uh, around what we collect because I think there will be a huge collecting effort around not just, not just um, library and archival collecting, but data collection by social scientists, other kinds of researchers, obviously. Um, but we'll also still keep doing that same uh, research in other contexts. And um, I think as you know, Ryan was mentioning, we need uh, more focus on society and, and um, all the, the kinds of inequalities that are in existence um, because this is just sort of perpetuated all of that. Um, I think there's a lot in terms of what people are collecting and what they'll be able to access when this is all over. Um, there are a lot of documentation efforts starting now that are um, primarily oral histories, but certainly there are other things um, happening. I, uh, and it's an interesting thing to look at what different organizations are collecting. It seems that they're collecting uh, in the context of their regular mission, but just around this event. So if, you know, Foxfire, as a heritage organization in Appalachia, they are looking at the Appalachian experience of COVID-19, right? You're just seeing a lot of that. Um, so I think that's going to be really interesting. I think as things progress, we'll start to see other kinds of, of um, stuff collected um, and, and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Can I ask you a question here just about your intuition as a researcher in this moment? Because, you know, the Disaster Research Center was one of the pioneering places with rapid response field-oriented disaster, you know, sociology, but it wasn't just, it was across many disciplines with the idea that there was a perishability to the, to memory, to materials you could gather, to the human experience. Um, and a lot of the, the lore of that is the going to the field experience. As a historian, I have to say, you know, starting out and reading the records of that made me wish that going to the field for me didn't mean going and sitting in an archive for three years, you know, I guess. And I've spent, ever since I started reading that, I was like, I gotta get closer to that. Can we go to the field from your living room? Well, I think that, um, 
it, in a lot of ways, the field has become the living room, right? We're all sitting in our individual homes having this conversation. And so I think the kinds of collecting you can do over, you know, Zoom is the way that a lot of people are living their day-to-day -day lives now. They're having not just work, but sort of conversations with friends and family. And um, so I think in that respect, I think this is the field. I do think that there are really specific contexts out there geographically. And I think, you know, there's a lot of talk of having researchers in um, EOCs right now, along working alongside emergency managers to kind of observe how that work is happening day to day. Um, I've been reading a lot about serological testing uh, to see who's immune, um, to see when that's coming, because I think that could be a game changer in so, so many ways, but in, also for researchers to be able to kind of go out and, and um, embed alongside. But I do think that in a lot of ways, this crisis is um, particularly positioned to be researched remotely, which um, is maybe the only convenient thing about it. I don't know. Are there ethical concerns about disaster researchers moving out into the research space sooner than they should? Um, so there's a big debate about, about uh, the ethics of disaster research. I don't think that that soon is really the defining factor. I think you have to be mindful of the fact that when you collect at a specific time frame, either data or cultural heritage items, that you're going to probably get more of certain viewpoints. You have to kind of be mindful to make sure that you're getting the whole picture across time. Mm -hmm. um, I, d I don't know that any of the ethical, that any of the ethical questions are, um, for, for me anyways, mm -hmm. uh, bounded by time. I think soon is fine, as long as you see it as part of a larger effort. Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a little worried. I want to go to a lightning, thank you for that, to those insights. I want to go to a lightning round now and give everyone a chance to speak, but let's keep a, a relatively short answer if you would. And Nenia, I'm going to come to you first on this, but I'm worried, um, picking up on what we're just talking about with Valerie, that for particularly for graduate students and for early career um, researchers in any setting, um, that there may be sort of overwhelming pressures for them to take risks right now that they shouldn't um, to get out there and get data. And I realize, and I, what Valerie's saying, really, I hadn't thought of it this way, but the research side is in our living room. And yet, in our fields, there still is a sense of like getting close to, close to the action, the practitioners, victims, sites, whatever they may be. Um, and I think it speaks to a larger concern just about the pressures on early career scholars right now. Is the academic system going to hold together? Is the research money going to be there? Are the senior um, researchers um, who are very close to retirement, are they just going to retire and leave their graduate students, um, you know, looking for new mentors? There's so many concerns there. I, I wonder if you would just pick up any of that. I want to just go down the line, but Nania, does any of that resonate with you? Absolutely, and I think it's, it's hard to, for people who are graduate students and early career scholars to push back on those expectations because the power is not, we're not in those positions of power and we operate within these larger systems. I do hope that things are starting to change and I think we have great allies and our senior scholars for having these conversations and pushing our institutions to think about the ethical issues that are at hand, both in terms of our own exposure um, in the field settings and potentially our impacts in the field, right? What if, you know, we don't want to be people who are potentially exposing research participants or practitioners we're interacting with to the virus any more than we want to necessarily be exposed um, because we have some kind of expectation that we need to be productive in a certain way. So I think it's on, incumbent on us also to 
engage in those conversations with our, our, our senior scholars, our, our leaders in our field, and um, really think of intentionally about how things need to pivot to ensure that people are protected and that the practice of research is changing to meet the needs of the situation. We also need to be considering things like, is it okay to be doing a Zoom interview in an era when we recognize there are all these security issues with Zoom? So those are the kinds of conversations that I think we should start having openly um, rather than kind of just like what we often do as early career people and wonder in our own heads and talk to our colleagues and uh, you know, are often afraid to put it out there for the other people who are making those decisions. Yeah, thank you for that. Ryan, let me turn to you, same, same question. Pressures you're feeling or things that you feel that the, the broader infrastructure of support that's out there, what needs to be shored up? What, what's on your mind on these issues? Sure. So I think that it's very real, the idea that early career scholars are going to be pressured to take risks. I think that it'll be very difficult at the same time to get an IRB protocol through that has you going out into the field and interacting with people. Um, and I know that because we, I have done that and I have, and we are conducting interviews right now with people about their experience of New York, of the COVID pandemic in New York City remotely online because mm -hmm. I don't want to, we don't want to be going out and infecting people or being infected ourselves or be circulating in defiance of stay at home orders. Um, and again, to something that Valerie was saying, I think there's something really important actually about doing online interviews in this particular moment in, 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 you know, because it captures also a, um, a crucial feeling and texture of social life in this particular period where so many of us only really socialize with people outside of our household through screens, right? Um, and so this is, a, again, one of those perishable textures of this moment that it will be important to capture. Um, but I think that um, it's also true to think through what it would mean to go into the field too early in a disaster like this that is so unevenly distributed in time. Is it too soon? It would be too soon to interview someone who's just recovering or who has a family member who's fallen ill from this disease but so many people still are in kind of denial or unable to perceive the seriousness of this event. And so it's in, in some ways important to talk to people who are like that. So you're preserving, you're capturing a sort of yeah. pre-event mentality. So, yeah. Thank you for that. Jansil, same question to you. Things that uh, you may be concerned about now as a researcher, as an early career scholar, things that you want people to know you, you need and your colleagues need right now that maybe we're not thinking about? Yeah, um, I, I don't know. I have anything like ha people haven't thought about, but I feel like there is a constant pressure on productivity in particular uh, to the younger generation, early career scholars. Um, we feel like we often say that the society has stopped because of the virus, but in fact, I feel like I'm moving much faster than before, <laughs> to be honest. So it feels like, um, and then I, on the other hand, I'm hearing all this cancellation of job interviews, cancellation of job postings, hiring plans, and halting of this postdoc positions and things like that. Um, so it feels like uh, things that needs to be stopped is not, is not stopping, but things that shouldn't stop, like hiring processes are stopping. So I don't know how to change, how to react to it, but I think it requires some, 
I don't know, large scale academia wide discussion of how to deal with this thing, especially this is going to be, you know, longer than we expected. Thank you. Zach, what's your take on this? I think that one of the issues, for me at least, is it doesn't feel like the field is just something out there. It feels like even when you're sitting in quarantine self-isolation, you still have family members who you're concerned about. You have friends and family who have gotten sick. Many of us are still teaching right now. We have students who are being impacted by this. We have students who have become sick. We have students whose family members have become sick. So this is a crisis that we're in the midst of, even sitting within our quarantines. Um, in terms of some of the other concerns, uh, I kind of just want to echo a lot of what Yansel was saying, but even more from, a, you know, but from the perspective of a graduate student, I think that a lot of people are concerned, regardless of the field that they're in, about getting back to their research and they're having to dramatically restructure what their research plans were because, you know, I, I feel like I know many other people whose summer research plans have gone completely out the window because who knows if that archive will be open, who knows if that library will be open, who knows if they'll be able to travel there. And at the same time, all of these questions about funding, about the job market, about how much time people thought they would have in which to finish their dissertations versus now kind of a recognition of, oh, maybe I have a year less than I thought I did. And also concerns about funding even for the summer. Um, I think that one of the things that this crisis has really made very, very clear is how precarious the life of a graduate student is um, and how disruptions like this you know it's not just about how will i be able to finish my dissertation it's also about how am i going to be able to pay rent this summer mm. thank you for that um valerie um we're coming towards the end of our time and if you wanted to comment on anything you just heard that would be fine but i also wanted to just sneak in a last question here and, and this will be for everyone um, I'll start with you, Valerie, because I know you think a lot about memorials and about sort of closure and mourning um, for disasters. Do you, it's still early days, I think, but do you think there will be an iconic memorial for this? Is there a way to make a global COVID memorial? Is this somehow a distributed memorial process? How are you thinking about the memorial? And I think Maybe that's going to be my question for everyone as we as we close out. How will you know it's over? Or what's that artifact you're looking for, that data point that will, in your own mind, say, okay, we reached an inflection point. We're sort of moving into a new phase of this. This was not a scripted question, so I'm putting everyone on the spot here, just so our viewers know. But Valerie, I know you think a lot about this, so I'm giving everybody else a chance to ponder it while you take us inside how this disaster ends. Yeah. Um... I mean, I'm not sure that I have a sense of how it will end. Um, I mean, I think uh, there there are a lot of theories out there, and I'll be really interested to hear what the other panelists will say. I, I do think in terms of how it'll be remembered, I think that's an interesting question. If we look at history, um, you know, our closest sort of corollary, it's the 1918 Spanish flu. Um, there, I can't 
you know, point in my local town to a 1918 yep. Spanish flu memorial. There's no memorial. Um, that said, it definitely, it followed on close uh, on with World War One, and, you know, there are a lot of factors there. Um, but I think in general, uh, war and conflict are more likely to be memorialized in sort of a concrete way. Um, and so I think a lot of it will be determined by the narrative that comes out of society about what this was. There's a lot of war talk now, of, you know, healthcare workers are on the front lines and yeah. things like that. And, and we could remember it that way as a society. Um, I don't know, I think it'll be interesting to see. Um, I do hope that we do memorialize it. I think that the sacrifices people are making are um, enormous and I hope that that's remembered uh, generations from now, but you know, I, I think we'll see. On April 14th, I'm going to have Jay Aronson on to talk about, for a full hour, to talk about Memorial. Um, Ryan, let me just put this very quickly, because we're almost out of time here, but have you thought about this? I thought about it. I think that um, the comparison to the 1918 flu is really helpful in part because it seemed like a forgotten pandemic, a forgotten crisis. And uh, as Valerie mentioned, I think part of the reason we think about it that way is because it was overshadowed by the First World War. But also, in a lot of ways, it was very similar to this in that it was distributed. There was no mm. single symbol, no single visual, no pile of rubble, no photographs of people uh, evacuating on the rooftops from uh, rising floodwaters. And so I think it's actually quite difficult to think about memorializing something that is so distributed and so out of sight for most people. I think that will make it quite difficult. Um, Yonsil, same question to you. Yeah, I mean, um, I thought about, I thought, I, I'm thinking a lot about how this is going to be end, and I'm thinking about a lot about responsibility. Mm. Um, um, can we sue Trump, for example, for lagging responses? Um, if, when, when, when does society move on? Uh, if, what about the individuals? If someone is suspecting uh, their family member's death is related to COVID-19, will they be able to trace their death to the COVID-19 mm. and find some sort of um, mental, uh, I don't know, mental healing or anything. Yeah. So that's what I'm uh, kind of thinking as the closure point. Um, who will there be any, um, how this is going to be, how all these re reactions yeah. is going to be re evaluated and how was, will there be any chances for the individuals to have proper closures? Well, I think that um, I don't know. Yeah, that's very perceptive. And I think, you know, it's the, it, in some ways, it's the flip side of what Valerie was talking about, you know, maybe um, that in the United States, certainly, sometimes, you know, when a disaster is over, um, because the class action lawsuits start and the victim's compensation fund is, is formed. Zach, I don't know if that, does that strike a chord with you? Or how, how are you looking? What's your data point to know that COVID is over? I mean, on a certain level, I feel like I'll know that it's over in a few years when we see the articles that said that the reaction was overblown. Um, I think that when you get to that point where people are already moving on from it and forgetting the lessons in an unfortunate way, I think that that's kind of the moment where I see like it closing when you're already starting to forget it. Um, I really don't know what this is going to end 
when this is going to end or what that will look like. Um, it seems to me like we're still very much in this crisis and there are many directions that this could still go in. This, you know, actions taken to flatten the curve could really pay off and things could end sooner. There's also the chance that we really missed the opportunity and that things are about to get dramatically worse. There's also the case, you know, people have brought up the 1918 pandemic that maybe this will kind of go away for a little while and then it will resurge even worse in the fall. Um, you know, I, I like to think that we will emerge from this and we will learn all of the lessons from it. But right now, I'm, uh, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm just feeling pretty pessimistic. That scenario that you sketched out, though, is one, I, I'm right with you on that. And, and I think it's also an area we really need to double down on research and reassurance because it's, it's, it was hard enough to get people to go inside and it's going to be very hard to get them to come back out. And we may be in a situation where we have to go back and forth on that cycle two or even three times in the next 18 months. Um, that's, a, that's a research need for sure. Nania, the last word to you today as we wrap up, how will you know it's over? Um, well, I, I guess I would echo Zach about there being a lot of uncertainty. Um, I think that certainly what we tend to see uh, after, you know, as people start to move on is that social institutions and systems start to reassert themselves. There is a, there's a momentum there. So we see um, the recovery process playing out unevenly. And so I, I do think that our, our folks that uh, are on the front lines of this um, will be championed by some and many will be forgotten because they are already undervalued in our society, like our, our grocery store workers and our delivery delivery and warehouse workers. Um, but it could also go the other direction and that we start to recognize collectively that we are all connected and that we cannot maintain the level of stratification that we currently have. And there could be a giant push to change our systems and to challenge um, our social structure. So I think it's too early to tell, um, but I absolutely echo what everybody else has said that, um, yeah, it, it, could, it, it could go a lot of different directions and um, we'll see. Nania Campbell, Ryan Hagen, Yansel Kang, Zach Loeb, and Valerie Marlowe. Uh, one thing I tape, take optimism from and hope from is just how brilliant all of you are. Thank you for spending this time uh, today with me on COVID Calls. I'd like to remind everyone that COVID Calls takes place every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time right here on YouTube Live, and then you can hear the archived episodes on soundcloud.com and just look for the Slow Disaster Podcast. And please join me tomorrow when we talk about disaster resilience communities and data with Daniel Aldrich and Robert Soden. Thank you everyone and everyone stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow at five o'clock. <laughs> <laughs>